do you need this? Ah, so it's not just like when you have a heart operation, you know, all those machines making beep, beep sound, which means nothing, it's just the, to create the atmosphere. Okay. <laughs> what do you think? Do you dare to say what do you, did you think I will be doing with it? Okay. Okay, so uh, I would like to talk today about a slightly more serious matter, not only jokes about materialism, theology, where do we stand today? Because I think we live in strange times. On the one hand, we have this so-called rise of fundamentalism and so on and so on. But something very interesting started to happen in the last years. Did you notice how a certain very vulgar, direct materialism, attacking religion as uh, stupidity, immoral loss, is gaining also at the same time extreme popularity. The three big stars, even four of course us, are uh, originally Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, and now also Christopher Hitchens and uh, uh, Sam, ha Sam Harris. It's kind of an extremely vulgar reductionist materialism claiming religion is basically stupid, ethically hurtful, and so on. Uh, uh, I think more and more that these are, in a way, two sides of the same coin. That, that it's, we don't have to choose between these two. Uh, so what do we have to do? Okay, let me go directly into the debate. Uh, less than a year ago, in September 2006, the Pope, the new one, Benedict, caused uproar, you all remember this, in Muslim circles, <coughs> when he quoted the infamous lines of a 14th century Byzantine emperor. Show me just what Muhammad brought that was new, and there you will find only evil and inhuman, such as his command to spread by the sword the faith he preached. So what was uh, Ratzinger's Pope's idea? Uh, he tried to, the Pope, to delineate what he saw as a fundamental difference between Christianity's view, according to him, that God is intrinsically linked to reason, you know, the beginning of the uh, Gospel of John, at the beginning it was the word Logos, blah, blah, and what Pope thinks is Islam's view that God is absolutely transcendent. Islam, according to Ratzinger, teaches that God's will is not bound up with any of our categories, even that of rationality, and the risk the Pope sees implicit in this concept of the divine is that the irrationality of violence might thereby appear to be justified to someone who believes it is God's will. So, for the Pope, the essential question is, is the conviction that acting unreasonably contradicts God's nature always and intrinsically true? His idea, of course, being for us Christians, it's uh, it is always true, God cannot enjoin us, compel us to act unreasonably. For Muslims, it is not always true. Uh, there is a problem with this statement. The problem is that uh, in the same move, as part of the same argumentation, the Pope also condemned what he called the Western godless secularism, in which the divine gift of reason has been warped into an absolutist doctrine. So, the conclusion of the Pope is clear. Reason and faith must 
come together in a new way. We should discover their shared ground, ground in the divine logos. And, I quote the Pope, it is to this great logos, to this breadth of reason, that we invite our partners in the dialogue of cultures. It sounds nice, but where do I see the problem? The problem, problems explode immediately when one analyzes a little bit more close what does the Pope understand with reason. Let's remember that just a week before this statement, which provoked so much uproar, uh, uh, the Pope also uh, made some remarks on the irrationality of Darwinism. Do you know that Benedict has removed Father George Coyne, a priest whose position was the director of the Vatican Observatory, after this American Jesuit priest repeatedly contradicted the Pope's endorsement of intelligent design theory, which essentially backs the Adam and Eve idea of creation. The Pope favors intelligent design, which says that God directs the process of evolution. He favors this intelligent design over Charles Darwin's theory, which holds, as we all know, that species evolve through the random, unplanned process of genetic mutation. Father Coyne was an outspoken supporter of Darwin's theory, arguing that it is compatible with Christianity. But the Pope wrote in his book, Truth and Tolerance, I quote Ratzinger, the question is whether reality originated on the basis of chance and necessity, and thus from what is irrational, you got the point, necessity is for Pope irrational. That is, whether reason, being a chance byproduct of irrationality and floating in an ocean of irrationality, is ultimately just as meaningless, just as meaningless, or whether the principle that represents the fundamental conviction of Christian faith and of its philosophy remains true, in principio erat verbum. At the beginning of all things stands the creative power of reason. Now, as then, Christian faith represents the choice in favor of the priority of reason and of rationality. So this then is the first qualification that one must add. The reason of which the Pope speaks is a reason for which Darwin's theory of evolution and, let's be clear here, ultimately modern science itself, for which the assertion of the contingency of the universe, the break with the Aristotelian teleology is a constitutive axiom. So for which Darwin and modern science are irrational, the reason of which the Pope speaks is the pre-modern teleological reason, the view of the universe as a harmonious whole in which everything serves some higher purpose. Which is why, incidentally, that's the nice paradox here, the Pope's remarks obfuscate the key role of the Christian theology in the birth of modern science. I think this is true that Christian theology played a crucial part, but which theology? What paved the way for modern science was precisely the voluntarist idea elaborated, among others, by Dun Scotus and René Descartes, that God is not bound by any eternal rational truths. That is to say, while the 
illusory perception of the scientific discourse is that it is a discourse of pure description of facts, the paradox resides, of the paradox of modern science, in the coincidence of bare facticity, facts, and radical voluntarism. Facts can be sustained as meaningless, as something that just is the way it is, only if it is secretly sustained by an arbitrary divine will. This is why Descartes is the founding figure, one of the founding figures of modern science, precisely when he made even the most elementary mathematical facts, like two and two is four, dependent on the arbitrary divine will. Two and two is four because God willed it so, with no hidden obscure chain of reasons. Even in mathematics, this unconditional voluntarism is discernible in its axiomatic character. One begins by arbitrarily positing a series of axioms out of which everything else is supposed to follow. So again, that's the first paradox. When Pope speaks about rationality, he means this pre-modern, theological, harmonious vision of the universe, not at all what we mean as the rationality of modern sciences. The second qualification, even much more interesting, is Islam really so irrational? Does it really celebrate a totally transcendent, irrational God above reason? Uh, 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 in a, an issue of the Time magazine around a year ago, there was an interesting interview with Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, the Iranian president, who advocated exactly the same unity of reason, logic and spirituality as Pope does, as the Pope does. That is to say, to the question what he would ask President Bush in the public debate between the two that he, Ahmadinejad, proposed, no? They asked him, okay, what would you talk with Bush about? Ahmadinejad replied, that's a quote. I would ask him, Bush, are rationalism, spirituality and humanitarianism and logic, are they bad things for human beings? Why more conflict? Why should we go for hostilities? Why should we develop weapons of mass destruction? Everybody can love one another. I have said that we can run the world through logic. Problems cannot be solved through bombs. Bombs are of little use today. We need logic. This is the despised Muslim fundamentalist and so on. And effectively, I claim that he was right. From the perspective of Islam, it is Christianity as the religion of love which is not rational enough. Its focus on love makes God all too human, biased, in the figure of Christ who intervenes into creation as an engaged combative figure, allowing his Christ's passion to overrun the logic of the creator and master of the universe. The Muslim God, on the contrary, is the true God of reason. He is wholly transcendent, not in the sense of frivolous irrationality, as the Pope thinks, but in the sense of the supreme creator who knows and directs everything and has thus no need to get involved into earthly accidents with partial passion. You know, the God already is total rational master of the universe, no need to intervene with some stupid self-sacrifices or whatever. No wonder then that, that's an interesting fact, that Islam find, finds it much easier to accept the, for our common sense, 
paradoxical results of modern quantum physics, which run against our common sense. The notion of an all-encompassing rational order, which runs against our common sense. That's the idea of quantum physics. The underlying logic of Islam is that of a rationality which can be weird, but which allows no exception. The universe is totally rational, while the underlying logic of Christianity is that of an irrational exception, unfathomable divine mystery which sustains our rationality, or as my beloved theologist Gilbert Keith, Keith Chesterton put it, the Christian doctrine not only discovered the law, but it foresaw the exceptions. It is only the exceptions which allow us to perceive the miracle of the universal rule. And for Chesterton, the same goes for our rational understanding of the universe. A quote from Chesterton's orthodoxy. The whole secret of mysticism is this, that man can understand everything by the help of what he does not understand. The morbid logician seeks to make everything lucid and succeeds in making everything mysterious. The mystic allows one thing to be mysterious and everything else becomes lucid. The one created thing which we cannot look at is the one thing in the light of which we look at everything. Like the sun at noonday, mysticism explains everything else by the blaze of its own victorious invisibility." End of quote. Chesterton's aim is thus to save reason through sticking to its founding exception. Deprived of reason, deprived of this exception, reason degenerates into a blind self-destructive skepticism, in short, into total irrationalism. Or, as Chesterton liked to repeat, if you do not believe in God, you will soon be ready to believe anything, including the most superstitious nonsense about miracles. Which is why, incidentally, and Chesterton was here consequent, as you probably know, he's even best known today as the writer of detective stories. Father Brown, no? What's the point of detective stories, as Chesterton put it? That you have something which appears enigmatic, mysterious, like, I don't know, locket room mystery, how somebody was shot in a locked room, and precisely the whole point of detective story is to avoid it, like, if, if the solution at the end would have been, oh, a divine, an agent intervened or what, you are cheating. The explanation must be totally rational. And that's the nicety of Chesterton. His claim is that Christianity is the only way to save reason through the exception. Uh, this was Chesterton's basic insight, that the irrationalism of the late 19th century, Nietzsche, Leben's philosophy, and so on, was the necessary consequence of the Enlightenment rationalist attack on religion. Another problematic nice quote. Uh, the creeds and the crusades, the hierarchies and the horrible persecutions of the pre-modern medieval universe were not organized as is ignorantly said, for the suppression of reason. They, and he means here precisely, again, witch hunts and so on, uh, they were organized for the difficult defense of reason. Men, by a blind instinct, knew that if once things were wildly questioned, reason could be questioned first. The authority of priests to absolve, the authority of popes to define the authority, even of inquisitors, to terrify, 
These were all only dark defenses erected around one central authority, more undemonstrable, more supernatural that, than all, the authority of a man to think freely. I love this. Insofar as religion is gone, reason is going. It's a consequent position. The position, again, of universal rule and exception. Uh, now, here, however, I think we encounter Chesterton's limitation, but a limitation which I think he himself overcome when in his, this is, I think, his best text, wonderful text on the book of Job, he shows why God had to rebuke his own defenders. This, as Chesterton put it, the mechanical and supercilious comforters of Job. You know the situation, no? Job got screwed up, family, all the property, everything lost, and then the three friends come, three or four, I don't remember, and they try to comfort him by the message that it can be explained there is a deeper reason why you were so screwed up, no? Uh, the first says, said, I don't know, it was because even if you don't know it, you must have done something wrong, God is just. The other said, but maybe you are just tested, whatever. They want to read meaning into it. And we have to be here very precise. I will return to this at the end. Uh, 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 what Job does, Job's point is not, no, I didn't. Job's point is not, no, I'm innocent, God is wrong. He just does not accept that there is a deeper meaning. And what the three or four theologists, friends who come to comfort him, insist on is precisely, no, your catastrophe has a deeper meaning. The nice thing, of course, as you know, which is why I think that the book of Job is the founding text of materialism, maybe, is that God himself, without any ambiguity, takes the side of Job. He says, every word that Job said is right, every word that these three defenders of mine took is wrong. Quote, the last one, a little bit longer from Chesterton. The mechanical optimist endeavors to justify the universe avowedly upon the ground that it is a rational and consecutive pattern. He points out that the fine thing about the world is that it can all be explained. That is the one point, if I may put it so, on which God, in return, God, when he comes back at the end to Job, is explicit to the point of violence. God says, in effect, that if there is one fine thing about the world, as far as men are concerned, is that it is that it cannot be explained. He insists on the inexplicableness of everything. He goes even further and insists on the positive and palpable unreason of things. A quote from the book of Job. Hast thou sent the rain upon the desert where no man is, and upon the wilderness wherein there is no man, and so on. To startle man, God becomes for an instant a blasphemer. One might almost say that God becomes for an instant, instant an atheist. He unrolls before Job a long panorama of created things, the horse, the eagle, the raven, the wild ass, Incidentally, I don't know what this is, it sounds crazy. The peacock, the ostrich, the crocodile. He so describes each of them that it sounds like a, like a monster walking in the sun. The whole is a sort of psalm or rhapsody on the sense of wonder. The maker of all things is astonished at the things he has himself made. End of quote. So, you got it. God is here no longer the miraculous exception 
which guarantees the normality of the universe, the unexplainable X who enables us to explain everything else. He is, on the contrary, himself overwhelmed by the miracle of his own creation. Upon a closer look, there is nothing normal in our universe. Everything, even every small thing, is a miraculous exception. Viewed from a proper perspective, every normal thing is a monstrosity. Say, we should, why should we take horses as, as normal and the unicorn as a miraculous exception? Even a horse, the most ordinary thing in the world, is a shattering miracle. And I think that this blasphemous god is the god of modern science. Since modern science is sustained precisely by such an attitude of wondering at the most obvious. In short, modern science is, science is on the side of believing in anything. It's one of the lessons of theory of relativity or quantum physics, not that modern science undermines our most elementary natural attitude and compels us to believe, accept the most nonsensical things. To clarify this confusion, I think that Jacques Lacan's logic of the so-called non-all can be of some help here. Lacan distinguishes the so-called masculine side, universality, all, universal law, grounded in exception, and non-all, where there is no exception, but because of this, no universality. Chesterton obviously relies on the masculine side of universality and its constitutive exception. Everything obeys natural causality with the exception of God, the central mystery. The logic of modern science, science is, on the contrary, feminine. First, it is materialist, accepting the axiom that nothing escapes natural causality. There is nothing which cannot be accounted for by rational explanation. However, the other side of this materialist axiom is that not all is rational. Not in the sense that there is something irrational, something that escapes rational causality, but in the sense that it is the totality of rational causal order which is in itself inconsistent, and in this formal sense, of course, irrational non-all. Only this non-all guarantees the proper opening of the scientific discourse to surprises, to the emergencies of the unthinkable. Who in the 19th century could have imagined things like relativity theory or quantum physics. So, perhaps the incompatibility between Derrida, I want to give you now an example of this difference, between Derrida and Deleuze, I think, can also be accounted in these terms. What makes Derrida masculine, in the sense of the logic of universality and its exception, is the persistence through he, throughout his, Derrida's work, of totalization through exception. The search for a post-metaphysical way of thinking, for the break out of the metaphysical closure, presupposes the violent gesture of universalization, of leveling, equalization, unification of all the field of intra-metaphysical struggles. You know, the story of all attempts to break out of metaphysics, from Kierkegaard to Marx, from Nietzsche to Heidegger, from Levinas to Claude Lévi-Strauss, ultimately remain within the horizon of the metaphysics of presence. This same gesture is clearly discernible also in Heidegger, for whom all reversals of metaphysics, from Marx to Nietzsche, from Husserl to Sartre, remain 
within the horizon of the forgetting of being, ultimately caught in the technological nihilism, nihilism as the accomplishment of metaphysics, as well as incidentally for Adorno and Horkheimer, for whom the entire Western thought is totalized as the gradual deployment of the dialectics of enlightenment, which culminates in today's administered world. As some people used to say, uh, from Plato to NATO, from Plato to NATO, it's a straight line. And incidentally, uh, it is this aspect that I also find problematic in our good friend, uh, Giorgio Agamben. I can say something critical about him because he's not here and I'm a human, warm person. I don't want to offend people face to face, so I'm saying this when he's not here. No, seriously, doesn't he do the same thing? Like, what narrative is he telling us? That from the very beginning of the West, Western philosophy, there is a certain line which culminates in, the, in a kind of a negative eschatology in today's homo sacer concentration camp logic. That's the truth of the entire development and all attempts to break out get caught into it. So we just have to wait for the, uh, wait, uh, for the uh, reversal. I'm tempted to claim that perhaps it is this very gesture of violent equalization of the entire field against which you then formulate your own position of exception, which is the most elementary gesture of metaphysics. This is for me what we should maybe drop. This idea of everything is part of metaphysics of presence, forgetfulness of being, except your own position from which you totalize it. In clear contrast to Derrida, this gesture of violent equalization is, as far as I can see, totally absent in Gilles Deleuze's work. Deleuze's gaze upon the tradition of philosophy is somehow like the gaze of God upon creation in God's reply to Job. There is no norm which would allow us to nivelize the field. Miracles are everywhere. Every phenomenon perceived properly from a position which estranges it from its standard context is an exception. This is what I like, again, in Deleuze. He's far from the idea, all hitherto is bad. No, he says, let's look at even Plato, who appears to be his enemy, even Kant, Spinoza. Everywhere you see an exception. Everywhere you see a miracle. Catholic Church, on the contrary, was, as a rule, always on the side of the common sense realism and universal natural explanation. From Chesterton to Pope John Paul II, who endorsed both evolutionism with the exception of the unique moment when God imparts to humans the immortal soul. It's always the same logic of, do you know that John Paul was for evolutionism? He said, perfect, it explains everything, except that moment when Adam and Eve, blah, blah, no? Or even contemporary cosmology. John Paul II said, it's wonderful, but don't mess with Big Bang. That's the exception that God intervened there. No wonder that many neo-Thomists noted a weird similarity between their own ontology and the ontology of the Stalinist dialectical materialism, because both were defending a version of naive realism. Objects, the way we perceive them, exist really outside our perception, independently of it, and so on. This is why both Catholic philosophy and dialectical materialism had such problems with the so-called open ontology of quantum mechanics. That is to say, how are we to interpret the so-called 
principle of uncertainty in quantum physics, which prohibits us from attaining full knowledge of particles at the quantum level. We cannot measure velocity and position of a particle, as we all know, at the same time. For Einstein, this principle of uncertainty simply demonstrates that quantum physics does not provide a full description of reality, that there must be some unknown feature missing, sorry, missed by its conceptual apparatus. As we all know, Heisenberg, Bohr, and others, on the contrary, insisted that this incompleteness of our knowledge of quantum reality points towards a strange incompleteness of reality itself, a claim which leads to a breathtaking weird ontology. What kind of weird ontology? Let me give you a well-known example. When we want to simulate reality within an artificial digital medium, we do not have to go to the end. We just have to reproduce features which make the image realistic for the spectator's point of view. Say, when you are playing a digital PC game, if there is a house in the background, the programmer does not have to construct the house's entire interior, since we expect that the participant, uh, the player, will not want to enter the house. Or the construction of a virtual person in this space can be limited to his exterior. You know, when you interact with a person there, it's not in the program bones and so on. It's not part of the rules of the game. We just need maybe to install a program which will promptly fill in this gap if the participant's activity will necessitate it. It is like, you know, when you scroll down a long text on a computer screen. Earlier and later pages do not pre-exist our viewing then. In the same way, when we simulate a virtual universe, the microscopic structure of objects can be left blank. And if stars on the horizon, when you see the sky in a digital PC set or whatever game, when if the stars appear hazy, blurred, we need not bother to construct the way they would appear to a closer look, since there is no closer look within the game. Nobody will go up there to take such a look at them. Now, you get it, what's my point? The interesting idea here is that the quantum indeterminacy, which we encounter when we inquire into the tiniest components of our universe, can be read in exactly the same way as a feature of the limited resolution of our simulated world. That is to say, as the sign of the ontological incompleteness of what we experience as reality itself. That is to say, let us imagine a god who is creating the world for us, its human inhabitants, for us to dwell in. His task, I quote here Nicholas Fern, Introduction to Philosophy, his task could be made easier, God's task, by furnishing the world only with those parts that its inhabitants need to know about. For example, the microscopic structure of the Earth's interior could be left blank, at least, at least until someone decides to dig down deep enough, in which case the details could be hastily filled in as required. If the most distant stars are hazy, no one is ever going to get close enough to them to notice that something is amiss. I love this theory because you got it. Why? The idea is that when God created the world, he underestimated us. He was too lazy. He thought that the limit of our knowledge is atoms. 
He thought that we will not go beyond the atom into dividing it. So why spend precious time of divine jouissance or what into constructing things there? So he simply left it open, you know? Who cares about the place of a particle velocity? Let's leave it open. We were a little bit too intelligent for God. We, we approached the end, we approached the limit. Now, of course, your counter question would have been, but what has this to do with materialism? Isn't this entire vision precisely based on the theological view? There must be a creator. My answer is no. That is to say, uh, we, uh, we, it's not necessary to read this ontological, as it were, incompleteness of reality as a sign that we live in a simulated universe, but we can simply read it as a sign of the ontological incompleteness of reality itself. And this, I think, is the difficult thing to accept. That is to say that reality is in itself incomplete, because our common sense tell us, tells us if reality is incomplete, it will we, collapse into itself. You know, you can play the game, but at some ultimate level, things, in order for things to exist, they must, how should I put it, by definition, fully ontologically exist. Uh, if reality really exists out there, it has to be complete all the way down. Otherwise, we are dealing with a fiction which just hangs in the air, like appearances which are not appearances of a substantial something. But here, precisely, I think, again, quantum physics offers a model of how to think such open ontology. And I claim, ruthlessly manipulating him, that Alain Badiou formulated the same idea in his notion of pure multiplicity as the ultimate ontological category. Reality is the multiplicity of multiplicities which cannot be generated or constituted from or reduced to some form of one's as its elementary atomic constituents. The difficult thing is to think multiplicity as original. You get my point? There, there is a multiplicity which is not multiplicity of ones. Mult multiplicity comes before one. No matter how far we progress in our analysis of multiplicities, we never reach the zero level of simple constituents. The only, you can go endlessly on the only background of multiplicities is just zero, the void. Therein resides, I think, Badiou's ontological breakthrough. The primordial opposition is not that of one and zero, but that of zero and multiplicities, and the one emerges later. To put it even more radically, since only once fully really exist, Multiplicities and zero are the same thing. Zero is multiplicities without ones which would guarantee their ontological consistencies. So when Badiou speaks about multiplicities and the void, his point is not this vulgar democrat one. You know, you immediately think, yes, yes, I know. Multiplicities are small atoms running all around and the void is the space. No. Imagine rather multiplicities, but then the more you divide them, it's always more open space. 
the, the zero is the substance of multiplicities. And now comes, okay, nonetheless, it's in my nature to tell a joke, not a dirty one. The ideal Baduian ontologist who confirmed this, I found it, believe me or not, I, uh, I found it, I encountered him in Poland. Uh, it's not a joke, it's a wonderful example. Namely, let's do a little bit of cultural theory. Uh, I was always interested in this, let's call it, differences in shared ideology, Lebensweltideology, ideology, which is betrayed by tiny details. For example, for me, the difference between Europe and the United States is that when you enter elevator in a hotel, you notice it. We in Europe start with zero. The ground level is zero, and then one, two. Americans start with one. Our ground level is there, one. It's clear. We know that you have to have a zero, a substantial background. Americans think you can start with one, you don't need the zero, the big other. Which, which is confirmed by another, uh, by another, uh, another strange thing. It always surprises me in American hotels, and as far as I know, correct me if I'm wrong, in Europe you don't find this, that in hotels which have more than 13 floors, the 13th floor doesn't, it's 12 and 40. This is, for me, part of the same phenomenon. Why? Because uh, uh, my, whenever I encounter this, I ask my American friends, but wait a minute, whom are you cheating? God knows that your 14 is really 13, no? I mean, it's kind of a subjectivist idealism, it doesn't work. So, okay, which of these solutions is then the right one? None of them. I got an answer in Poland, where I was staying in a hotel, and uh, I noticed there's something very strange. It's really like they read Badius uh, being an event. Uh, they, do, they start as Europeans, zero, but they go directly to two. <laughs> zero, two, three. And then there was this spontaneous philosopher. I asked, surprised, an old gentleman, the porter operator, but why? Where is the one? You know what he told me? I was shocked, unbelievably. Well, the moment you start to count, the zero itself becomes one. Zero, in order to count, zero has to be counted as one. Oh my God, no wonder they had solidarity and all those. Because solidarity is maybe zero counted as one or whatever, no? But you see my point. I think, so again, contrary to this idea that materialism means full reality out there, ontologically constituted. I think that the, the true challenge today is to think this kind of a materialism of multiplicities against the background of void. Again, uh, what we should do here, a little bit of uh, uh, excursus into Kant, you know, it's an old distinction that I'm referring to all the time, wonderful Kantian distinction between negative and infinite judgment. You know, the negative judgment, you negate a predicate. Infinite judgment, you don't negate a predicate, but you affirm a non-predicate. And it's totally different. Let's take a simple example, uh, uh, which will make it immediately clear, uh, my favorite from horror literature and so on. How can you negate the statement, you are dead? You can do the negative judgment. You negate the predicate. You aren't dead. What this means? It means simply you are alive, no problem. But what if you, instead of negating the predicate, you affirm a non-predicate? You don't say 
you aren't dead, but you say you are undead. Every reader of Stephen King knows is something totally different. It's the infinity of the undead, vampires, etc., the living dead, and so on. And I think we should do the same here. If we take the axiom, material reality is all there is. We, if we negate it in the mode of negative judgment, then you say material reality isn't all there is. This is idealism. Ha <laughs> ha, there is something else. What we should say is not material reality isn't all there is. We should say material reality is non-all. There is nothing outside. It's just incomplete in itself. And that's difficult to accept. If I return back to the beginning, both for those vulgar materialists and so on, as for the New Age idealists, and a little bit of just concluding, some concluding remarks on ecology. I think that the true side of the struggle for materialism today is ecology. How? Again, let me, I'm here developing an idea that but you gave me in a conversation, namely that ecology has all the chances of developing today into the predominant form of ideology of our global capitalism. I'm more and more convinced that even multiculturalism doesn't look so well, liberalism, if you dig to the end, it's ecology. Ecology is effectively, as, but you put it to me in a private conversation, a new opium of the masses, for the masses, replacing religion. Why? It takes over the old religion's fundamental function, that of putting on an unquestionable authority which can impose limits. The lesson this ecology is constantly hammering is our finitude. We are not Cartesian subjects extracted from reality. We are finite beings embedded in a biosphere which vastly transgresses our horizon in our exploitation of natural resources. We are borrowing from the future, so one should treat our Earth with respect as something ultimately sacred, something that should not be unveiled totally, something that should forever remain a mystery, a power we should trust, not just explode and dominate. While we cannot gain full mastery over our biosphere, unfortunately, it is in our power to derail it, to disturb its balance, and so on and so on. This is why, although ecologists are all the time demanding that we change radically our way of life, underlying this demand is its opposite, a deep distrust of change, of development, of progress. Every radical change can have the unintended consequence of triggering a catastrophe. This distrust was given a new impetus by today's biogenetics, which is on the verge of a crucial breakthrough. Namely, till now, geneticists were confined to tinkering, tweaking what nature has already produced. You took a gene from a bacterium and insert it into a chromosome of a pig or whatever. Whatever, but now the prospect is to produce life that will be wholly new, not in any way a genetic descendant of already existing biological uh, organisms. The initial members of each newly created breed will have no ancestor at all. So the genome itself of this organism will be artificially put together. First, individual biological building blocks will be fabricated. Then they will be combined into an entirely new synthetic self-replicating 
organism. And as we know, scientists designate this new life as life 2.0, as opposed to our natural life, which becomes life 1.0, you know, like Microsoft 5 and so on and so on. This is effectively a kind of end of nature. Synthetic life is not just supplementing natural life. It turns natural life itself into a confused, imperfect species of synthetic life. So there effectively are some breathtaking prospects here. And my idea is that those who opposed most ferociously this prospect are precisely religious leaders and environmentalists. For both, there is something of a transgression of entering a prohibited domain in this idea of creating a new form of life from the scratch. And this brings us back to the notion of ecology as the new opium for the masses. The underlying message is again a deeply conservative one. Any change can only be the change for the worst. Here is from a newspaper report I read a passage which describes this typical ecological attitude. Behind much of the resistance to the notion of synthetic life is the intuition that nature, or God, created the best of possible worlds. Charles Darwin believed that the myriad designs of nature's creations are perfectly honed to do whatever they are meant to do, be it animals that see, hear, sing, or plants that feed on the sun's race, and so on and so on, end of quote. So, I, but I claim that this reference to Darwin is totally misleading. The ultimate lesson of Darwinism is the exact opposite, namely that nature tinkers and improvises with great losses and catastrophes accompanying every limited success. Is the fact that 90% of the human genome is junk DNA with no clear function not the ultimate proof of it? Consequently, the first lesson to be drawn is the one repeatedly made by Stephen Jay Gould. The utter contingency of our existence. There is no evolution. Catastrophes, broken equilibriums, are part of natural history. At numerous points in the past, life could have turned into an entirely different direction. The main source of our energy, oil, is the result of a past catastrophe of unimaginable dimensions. And again, this is, I think, this, I think, is what we should accept. The first premise of materialist ecology is nature doesn't exist. Like Lacan said, la femme n'existe pas. If we mean by nature this kind of a mythic, balanced, self-reproducing universe, which is then derailed by human hubris, and then we should somehow return to it. I quite agree with those who claim that there is in the predominant form of ecology a kind of a secularized version of this religious idea, religious idea uh, of, the, uh, of the fall. And this is the truly different, the truly difficult materialist thing. To, of course we have to do something, I'm totally pro-ecologist, but we have to drop this idea that there is an ultimate point of reference, nature like mother nature, balanced universe, which we disturbed and to the balance of which we should somehow return. Nature, I, I think we should even go a step further and reject a certain anthropology which we find not only in almost entire modern philosophy, 
Kant, Hegel, Nietzsche, Heidegger, but even Lacan, at least the early Lacan, this idea that man is a sick unto death, sick nature, derailed nature. Nature is already in itself sick, confused. Again, there is no nature. What does this mean practically? There is no previous standard to which, this would be the practical advice for uh, ecological politics, to which we can return. My favorite ecological book is the one, an American scientist, I forgot his name, who demonstrated that nature itself on our earth is already to such an extent integrated into our pollution that if our pollution were to diminish too fast, it would have probably meant a total catastrophe for animal life and so on. No, I'm, my message is not, haha, then we can do whatever we want, but that the situation is much more terrifying. Of course, I totally believe there can be catastrophes and so on, but there is nothing but catastrophes. We don't have a ground. We have nowhere to return to. Which is why uh, I think that, but it's another story, I will not repeat it here, I think I already referred to it last time precisely here, which is why, uh, uh, which is why I think that uh, this idea that, another idea, we should drop it totally, that the ultimate source of our ecological problems is alienated predomination of scientific universe science manipulating and then they say we should not forget that prior not this phenomenological Husserlian description prior to every scientific objectivization there is the life world and we are irreducibly immersed into the life world this is for me precisely the catastrophe why let's ask ourselves a simple question you read about global warming blah 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 ozone hole well, look up as much as you want, you will not see ozone hole. I mean, we totally have to rely on science. And on the other hand, uh, when a scientist, why, where does this mysterious fact comes that although the possibility of catastrophe is convincingly demonstrated by scientists, we strangely, we humanity, do not do, take some serious measures, react to it. I think it's this fetishist split. We know very well that it's true, but nonetheless, we don't believe it. Why? Precisely the, what happens? You read about catastrophe. Then what do you do? Then you go out. What a nice star. The stupid eyes there. Clay. Oh, my God. Like, you really cannot believe that this natural life world can be destroyed. So I think that precisely in order to confront properly ecology, we should all become Cartesian subjects. We should renounce this reliance of, on the life world as the ultimately given universe and so on and so on. So now, really, look, just a concluding remark. This materialist lesson, to return, to conclude briefly, is for me the lesson of the book of Job. Because, read it, every year I repeat this, I know what really happens there. Job three ideologists, as I already said, and did you notice the strange parallel between the structure of the book of Job and the structure of Freud's most famous dream with, with which he opens, Traumdeutung, Interpretation of Dreams of Irma's Injection. The structure there is the same. First, it's a catastrophe. The patient, the dreamer, Freud was dreaming, it, looks into Irma's throat, horror, the real, Irma's throat catastrophe, then all of a sudden the shift into three stupid doctors who produce some reasons, inconsistence, 
why Freud is not guilty. No, there was no injection. The injection was already, uh, uh, Irma was already infected before whatever. Doesn't exactly the same thing happen in the structure of the book of Job? First, the catastrophe. He loses everything uh, uh, from, from animals to women and so on. It's interesting how when you have this description that Job loses cows, pigs, wives, daughters and so on, no? This reminds me of, you know, when uh, the Bible prohibits the Ten Commandments, don't uh, steal or covet your, steal your neighbor's wife, then it goes on, neither his cow, his pigs or whatever. One should put things in context. Okay, but what I'm saying that there also, exactly as in Freud, the three ideologists, what comes them are the three, precisely the three ideologists. This is, I think, the zero level of ideology. The three theologists which come to Job with the message there is a deeper meaning to your misfortunes. That's what we should resist. This is how ecology today predominantly functions, as there is a deeper meaning. We transgress some prohibition and so on. And this is why God is the only true materialist there, who comes and says there is no, with, uh, there is no transcendent meaning, everything is a miracle. God, as remember, Chesterton says, God is for a moment an atheist there, pure immanentist. There is no transcendent master, which is why, I think, we have to read Christ as repetition of Job. What dies on the cross with Christ? As God knew, what dies is not an earthly representative of a transcendent. What dies is precisely God as this transcendent master of the universe. What dies on the cross for me is this idea whose the idea of God as the ultimate guarantee of meaning. You know this vulgar metaphor that I hate, that our creation is like a painting. When we see a catastrophe, it is as if when you look at the picture and you look too close and you see only the stain. But from a proper distance, you see that what appeared as a stain contributes to the harmony. Okay, I think that the lesson of Christianity, the materialist, this is for me the lesson of Christ that we cannot afford this withdrawal. When we are confronting horrible things, I don't know, Holocaust, concentration camps, or other similar catastrophes, it's a little bit vulgar to say, yeah, this only appears to you as a catastrophe because of your limited perspective, withdraw back and you will see how it contributes to harmony or whatever, no? Uh, there is no big other, this is why I think, this would be a kind of a more materialist reading that why Christ truly sacrificed himself. The message is no, all we can do is here. There is no father up there who takes care of it. That, uh, so in, in, in a way, I think that it's the opposite. It's not trust God. No, God trusts us. All that can be done is we should do it. In this sense, with this incomplete notion of reality, it's also that we can, how to put it, it opens up in this sense, the space for freedom. There is freedom only in an ontologically unfinished reality. So I, it was exactly one hour, that's what I wanted. Thank you very much. Yeah, welcome to artificial life, uh, Slavoj. It took you long because you have so many other avenues to gain. But I know that you cannot be educated, so I will not do it uh, tonight. But maybe one day you will read. We really love each other. You got it. No. So, <laughs> but I see that you add another group of people to 
uh, your enemies, ecologists, you know, that's good, so you bet mousing them too, not just Derrida and all the others, so also do something. But that is what we expect from you, so what else uh, can we do? It's just funny, uh, I wonder... Uh, I knew something will appear. Have, some... you, have you been... Uh, I thought you were raised as a communist, no? I am a communist. Uh, yes, uh, not raised, raised, I mean raised, where suddenly you embrace the legion and, and, and then, uh, you will speak about the legion like a, like a Dominicana, you know, six, nicht? oh, there are this story. How come, where do you... Uh, but where do you see a problem? All no, good political terror had a religious background. Yes, My German hero is Thomas Minzer yes, and so on. But at least uh, like Goebbels raised in that, you know, you are very late come out to the game. So you are, what's that you call, yeah, right, that you call it uh, in America? Uh, Newborn, or yes. what? Born again! Yeah. Born again, thank you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. So no, but, uh, but I think it's always, always uh, fundamentalist, and these also born again atheists now, but all this comes uh, <coughs> out there. I always wonder why is that, for me, I have a little trouble here. I was raised too, but I was raised in many religions, so I'm uh, screwed up from the beginning. Um, <laughs> my problem is always still, why is that, it's like kicking a dead dog, you know, that is, <laughs> what is a big deal? Right? And, uh, the you mean is, in the religion or yeah, what? Yeah, I mean, or in atheism. Huh? I mean, it's, this, uh, it's the same thing. Also show me the phenomenon first. Right? Let me meet God. But unfortunately, looking at you, but, best, but, the best I can do is but, meet the devil. It's not yeah, but <laughs> what's the difference? That's the first properly Christian answer. God is devil. It's just yeah, a point okay, of perspective. Okay, as long as he does not introduce himself to me, he does not exist for me. It's the only thing. Uh, no, why should I uh, talk about something which I have no phenomenon for? But wait a minute. I'm an atheist. I, yeah, but it is it's the same thing. Why do you have to renounce something which does not is a phenomenon? You say, no, there is nothing. Sure, there is nothing, but what's the point of talking about that? There are nothings and nothings. Yeah, I know there are no there is, there, Yeah, yeah, there is a wrong... Okay. okay, there is a history. I agree with you. Yeah. There is history and power, and there is a pope, and there is also a big entertainment industry called religion uh, and so on, nicht? and it turns into, sometimes into a... Uh, a cult and uh, has a lot of victims and so on, etc. So here I see a lot of political argumentation. I still don't see the philosophical uh, part of it. But, uh, and I agree, what you do is you take out these old stories, you know, it's, it's uh, literature. Which job and so on. Yeah, the job, it is literature, metaphor, you can draw some insights, nicht? make it, it's, yeah. it's another form of you, you joking, you know, you're joking with serious material, yeah. so to speak, I, I understand that still, is it worth your brain power? That is, uh, is it not, it's ecology, yes, mm. that's worth your brain power. Yeah. Go after them, but leave the religion behind. Just, uh, just an advice, you do what you want. Okay. No, Let's okay, see. I will not lose the, it's my commentary. As yeah, no, no, I mean, if I'm we are asking questions, yeah. I just comment. Telling the okay. truth. Micah? The, sorry, truth. Be, 
No, I'm not. No, I, here I would agree with what probably. I don't want to speak too much for him, but you would have said. I, I don't think there is a truth dimension in this. I don't, I don't, I don't think. I don't think. What interests me is only, this is not a truth event in this strict sense, but uh, how to put it, what really changes with artificial life, let me be very precise here, I pass over this very fast, is that once we accept artificial life, it's no longer that you have natural life and artificial life. This, the, the very possibility of artificial life retroactively denaturalizes natural life itself. The moment you have 2.0, natural life becomes 1.0, how should I put it, you know? It's the same as with, uh, for example, this is my big disagreement with Habermas, who opposes too much of biogenetic uh, uh, playing with human genome and so on, that this will threaten our freedom. No, I think that the, uh, the moment it is possible to do it, for example, the moment we discover, if it's true, it's more complex, but the moment you put it in these terms, will we insist on education, autonomous, conscious work, or on simply changing our psychological attitudes through drugs? The moment you say this, you lose. There is no choice. Because if you can do it through chemicals or genetic manipulations, this means that even if you don't do it, it depends just on another constellation of chemicals in your body. So, you know what I mean? The choice is not between freedom or chemical bio, biogenetic manipulation. The choice is between conscious biogenetic manipulation and stupid natural trends or whatever. You, you know what I mean? If I can change my psychological attitude through chemistry, this means that my psychological attitude prior to this intervention must already be dependent on chemistry, just on another chemistry. So the question here is more radical. No wonder that Habermas, as you probably maybe know, a couple of years ago even published a book with Ratzinger. This is for me the big symptom how Habermas, who uh, publicizes himself as the great, the last advocate of enlightenment, all of a sudden speaks the same language as this conservative protest. Basically, he's repeating the same story, which is, uh, which is something, it's it's, in order to save our freedom, it's better not to know too much, to go too far at the level of knowledge. I think that in a more serious, radical, philosophical perspective, we have to confront this problem. I mean, it's not the question of saving freedom, it's the question of how is freedom ontologically grounded, and so on and so on. For me, Habermas is simply not radical enough here. He relies on some transcendental uh, law. I mean, you know, this tra classical transcendental answer, which for me is totally insufficient, that natural sciences have their own ontological horizon. And that if you deduce from biological reasoning, observing man as a neuronal being, that there is no freedom, that you confuse different spheres, I think it's, again, it's too simple, because my, let, let's say I am lazy and you are not lazy. Let's say that we have to compete. You are not lazy and you are more intelligent than me. But then I take a pill and I eat which pill, whatever, it's a metaphor, metaphor for some biochemical intervention, which makes me much more intelligent without a great effort. 
Now you would say, but this is, un maybe you would say, I don't know, but this is unfair. I worked hard, you just did it. Then I would answer, but why is it unfair? If I was able to do it through chemistry, this means that your having, you having to, to work much more was simply the result of not having enough chemistry like me. Take the pills. Of course, this is not my ultimate answer. What I'm only saying is that there is a serious problem which precisely these people who worry so much will new the modern science deprive us of our humanity. They are avoiding the problem. There is, this is the ultimate irony of today's moralists, that to worry about something is the ultimate way to avoid the problem. To focus on the problem is the way to avoid the problem. So, again, okay, I stop, talk enough, yeah. Have you ever encountered Helmut Plessner? Yeah. He's the anthropologist, yeah. philosophical anthropologist. Right-winger, no? Hmm? Right-winger, no? No, no, no. Politically, I mean. No, no, no. Are you sure? Yeah, no. Yeah. In my I black book, in my black book. Yeah, in your black book, because yeah. it's one of his key uh, notions, begriffe was, we are the artificial by nature. Ah, that's a, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but that's also, is a, it's not about knowing what is nature as such. Yeah. It's not our, our way of existing. It's more than a perspective. It's our way of existing. We, we are existing artificially. We, we create, yeah. generate yeah. our own way to, uh, to live and totally right. Uh, <laughs> this is not something in this way or that way. It's for all our enterprises. It's not that music or that cetera, yeah. so also the biotechnology, the moment we can do it, there is no way out. Yeah, yeah, cannot yeah, say, yeah, yeah. Cannot say, I refuse it and I don't do it, but okay, you, are, you can do it, and so you will do it one day. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, also, it's not so that the things are not uh, known, but there is this resistance of the traditional forces, left and right. Saying mm. no, no, mm. that cannot be. Mm. There must be some security, mm. some standard, or things like that. But the standard is what we generate. That's all there is. There okay. were two, three of them. So that, yes. uh, okay, yes, let me go from from the graduate middle. Please, uh, please. I just had a comment. I don't know if you've heard about Sam Harris's work on brain imaging. To repeat my joke from the, my afternoon talk, which you were there. Of course, I know about it. My thesis is, you know, when people ask me, why are you for death penalty? Well. Because Sam Harris is alive, how should I put it? No, I really hate that book. Yeah. Ah, really? That's uh, that's more interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I think I even did did the last year here. Namely, I draw attention that in his uh, first book. Now he has another bestseller. The end of faith or belief, what's that? The end of faith, I think, you know, it's for me deeply symptomatic that in this very book where he advocates an aggressive uh, atheism, with immediately my Stalinist gaze notices one exception uh, Buddhist meditation, no? Which is rehabilitated, but uh, in this very book he advocates torture. This is a detailed argumentation for torture. For? People would say your lessons are torture. <laughs> Some people would say your comments <laughs> at the end. So it's a, no. <laughs> torture. <laughs>
you know the basic plot of the novel. A group, a, a secret pol top policeman hires people to chase uh, some secret terrorist organization. At the end, you learn that this secret top policeman, whom you don't see in the face, it's precisely it's the same as the criminal gang chief, and they're both God. God is fighting himself and so on. Uh, I think that one has to read it in a very, you know, often we intellectuals make a mistake, especially with Nietzsche people make this mistake, to put too much irony, joke into it. I think the key is to read Nietzsche as a totally, in Schiller's term, not sentimental but naive. And I think it's the same with this Chesterton. I, I, uh, I, uh, I only think that at the end you get something more. The problem is not only God is devil and so on, but then where is the, in this imagined theology, the role of Christ suffering and so on. But I think, yes, that it's an extremely interesting novel. The proof of it is that I checked on the internet in the bookstores, I didn't buy them, in books, texts on Chesterton, and I was shocked how people try to squeeze out, like, like, nobody wants to take it seriously and simply to draw the conclusions from it, which are very clear. God and devil are the same. God is fighting himself. God himself, in order to be the Christian God, had to be an atheist and all, all, all that stuff and so on. Again, no wonder that it's an, it's an embarrassment. But again, if you like that novel, I would really advise you to look a little bit around. First, the theological counterpoint to that novel, which is orthodoxy, the book, and then some of the wonderful short texts, like his reading on, on the book of Job and so on and so on. Uh, it's a, a, you, at first, I mean, it's not just your experience. You know, this is the so-called hard problem of consciousness about which you, may, you probably know it even better than me. There is a, I even in, okay, Maybe you know it, in my Parallax book, I have a whole long chapter on it, no? all possible variations. Like you have direct idealists like Chalmers, David Chalmers, who advocate that the only way to account for awareness is to, to, to posit awareness as together with, uh, together with gravity, all elementary forces as another elementary natural force, like gravity, electromagnetism, and so on, that you absolutely cannot reduce it to others. My problem with this is that I almost feel vindicated in my vulgar Leninism, when Lenin says how uh, idealists always turn out to be vulgar materialists, no? He wants to save consciousness, he ends up naturalizing into just another uh, just another uh, uh, natural force. You have one position, then you have, you probably know the, the McGinn position, no? Which is that it's, uh, it uh, structurally cannot be explained. Then you have again the way others are dealing with, but so, yes, of course this, uh, uh, how to put it? Uh, uh, of course this is a key question, but I think, I cannot go now into a detail, that precisely through this, open ontology, where you always count with the void, with nothing, where nothing can have an existence and so on, that in this way maybe, I don't know, I mean, if you look at the question as an empirical scientific question, what can I say as a philosopher? Nothing. It would be the worst old-fashioned ontology even in the Stalinist way where you as a philosopher are supposed to be a kind of a general controller giving advices to scientists. I cannot say anything. All I'm saying that 
philosophically, I can see how one can open up the space for a possible explanation of consciousness, because I think that, uh, uh, look at the work of two philosophers, which are otherwise opposed, uh, 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 but you and Deleuze. Although they are both materialists, and there are differences between them, they both are doing something which is, for me, very interesting. What is the problem of Deleuze? Is precisely how to account for the immateriality of what he calls event, and so on. And his thesis in his best books, which are, for me, the early ones, Difference and Repetition and Logic of Sense, before the Gattari corruption, is that, uh, is that not only we materialists can also explain it, but that only materialists can explain it, that every idealist explanation of consciousness sooner or later substantializes it, secretly reintroduces some kind of a vulgar, mater vulgar materialism. Simply, consciousness becomes just another substance. Fully. So, uh, uh, with Badiou it's the same. The whole problem of event is precisely Event, but event, it's not as stupid people accuse, but you, miracle from, event is, as he puts it somewhere, just a, I don't know what exact expression you use, a curvature, a twisting of, in the order of being, ultimately. So he's not saying out there, event. Ultimately, there is nothing but being. And I found this deeply significant and optimistic, that the theories which, the theories, the, that the, those theories who, for me, are even at a naive, intuitive level, the most convincing, closest to convincing at least, about how, where did thought come from and so on, are materialist theories. Of course, not that vulgar, naturalizing materialism. Of course, you cannot explain consciousness if you ask the question in this reductionist terms, what happens in my brain? when I am conscious. In this way, of course, you will always find only something that happens in your brain. And then this uh, awareness idiot will always come and say, but wait a minute, even if that happens in my... You know, it's the same, it's the same paradox, which is a crucial, nice paradox of determinism. You know what's the big problem in... Uh, Chalmers has some nice descriptions in the problem theory of consciousness, is that the more they succeed in this vulgar, direct brain sciences approach, the more the problem becomes mystical, because even Dennett approaches this problem, but I don't think he solves it. Uh, you explain certain phenomenon, which we do consciously, like complex thinking, as a certain automatic neuronal process. Okay, but then the question emerges, if it's all happening there as a blind process, why does it have to be conscious? You know, the better you explain it, the more superfluous consciousness becomes. So uh, my view would have been, and there are some people who are not idiots, even Dennett in his best moment and so on, who move in this direction, that it's totally wrong to approach consciousness as perfection, in the sense of, my God, something so complex, you can do it only if you are conscious. It's the opposite. Consciousness is originally a consciousness of failure. You become conscious when, when something goes wrong, how should I put it? That consciousness is not this when it's too perfect. It, it's even empirically true, you know, that like, uh, what if there is a thing which phenomenologically distinguishes us humans from 
the more or less we can say naively thinking animals like apes or whatever it's not the com it's not the complexity as such it's precisely that in a way we even more fell into are prone to some illusions like what i liked is uh, a friend from duke university a turkish guy wonderful brain scientist told me that he was doing some of this boring experiment with apes and so on and he told me that the first strange thing is that apes are contrary to what you would expect much more plastic adaptable than humans like if you show to an ape a beautiful female partner and a bad one but put obstacles that he cannot reach the beautiful one he will try the ape for some time then he will say f off no and let's accept the second place no uh, but with humans we, we we are attached you don't drop it no if anything humans are more fixated it's not that we humans are more plastic and so on okay but i'm getting lost here sorry sorry yeah yeah they are they are this kind of a rational choice apes and so on we humans are crazy we are and i think this goes even for the history of science isn't it that it's not like some vulgar materialist thing that first inventions were for real life production then they were used for amusement we know that the first phase of modern machineries the court of 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 louis 14 where they were building all these automats and so on first comes the surplus then you say maybe why don't we use it also for then marxists come who say but where is the development of productive forces and so on no and even marx was aware of this but let's not get lost in it